All right, let's take our Bibles this morning to Romans chapter number 5. Romans chapter number 5, we are going to move around a little bit this morning uh, and kind of build on uh, just really the next step. We've looked in two messages at sin. We looked first really at what it is. Uh, so many people today struggle to even identify what sin is or who has a right to say that one thing is sin and one is uh, not. And so the Bible is very clear about that. And God, of course, is the answer to that question. Uh, and so someone may have a legitimate argument when they come at you and say, who are you to say? Uh, but when I'm telling you what God has said, then that just negates that whole argument. And so I realize that in the day and age in which we live, uh, that there are many people out there that will not accept that and say, Pastor, what do I do then? You do what Jesus did. You just give the gospel. If they reject it, you move on. Uh, and so, but the seed's been planted and you leave it in God's hands to cultivate it and to grow it. And continue to pray and be an example. <clears throat> but so we looked at, at what sin is and then we looked at what sin did. Uh, last week we looked at the consequences of sin, what that did to us and uh, what God's response was, not just to humanity, but to the earth and his creation in general. Uh, and so we'll touch on that just briefly this morning. But uh, in the midst of all of that, we have a statement here in Romans chapter 5 that we're going to really address uh, this morning in verse number 11. We're going to start here reading in verse number 1 and read down through verse 11 uh, and then jump right into the message this morning. The <laughs> Bible says here, Therefore being justified by faith... We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that in, tribula knowing that in tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope, and hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man would one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. Now I want to speak this morning on that statement. We have now received the atonement. Now let's pray. Father, thank you for the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, that you've not left us in our sin, but you've reconciled us to yourself. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us to come to understand this concept biblically. Uh, most of us use the terminology, but even many who have sat in a church for uh, and sometimes decades really don't understand the depth of what it means and uh, and how liberating it can be to us to understand what you've given us in salvation through Christ Jesus. Lord, I pray that you'd help open this to our hearts. I pray that you'd help us to be grounded in our faith and to be unmovable. Um, Lord, I pray that you'd just work in our hearts as is needed. In Jesus' name and amen. So we looked <clears throat> over the last couple of sermons on uh, sins separated 
<coughs> excuse me, humanity from God. We're completely cut off. <clears throat> and so as we go through life and as we enter life, what God created in perfection in the garden, sin defiled. I say defiled because the earth is not destroyed. We still live on it. We still breathe the air. We still partake of uh, the ground, but we harvest now with the, the toil of sweat and the uh, back and body aches that come with labor. And we uh, have to deal with infirmities, affliction, sickness, disease. Uh, all of those things are a result of the curse of sin upon the earth. But sin did that. God did not do that. Sin did that. And so the sin of humanity separated us from God. It brought the curse upon the earth. And it brought with us a pain and suffering uh, and the whole process of death that we have to endure in this life. Sin took two entities who were one, who were united, who were in harmony, and it made them enemies. We see in Romans chapter 5 and verse 10, we read this this morning and we read the opening text, for when we were enemies, we were without Christ, the enemy of God. And so in our unsaved condition, in our unreconciled condition, we stand without Christ, an enemy of God. We are opposed to God's values. We are opposed to God's law. Uh, we are opposed to, uh, God, to everything that's holy and righteous about him. Ephesians chapter number two and verse number 15 and 16 uh, puts it this way, having abolished in his flesh, speaking of Jesus, the enmity even the law of commandments contained in ordinances and to making himself of twain one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both God and one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. In James chapter number four, and uh, verse number four, he talks about that as well when he says, for ye adulterers and adulteresses, and that's what we are apart from Christ. When we take our attention off of him, he compares the church and the believers as the bride of Christ. When we, uh, when we unite, when we worship other things, when we worship and make gods of other things in our life, uh, then we are adulterers and adulteresses. For when we were yet adulterers and adulteresses, uh, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God. And whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. And in our natural state, we are the enemies of God. And it's important to understand because we have to understand and establish why we need to be atoned. Why do I need to be saved? Why do I need to put my faith and trust in Christ? I think in the day and age in which we live, that is a more difficult concept to communicate than it was even 20 years ago, or than certainly than it was 30 years ago, uh, to get us to the place where we understand that in my natural condition, I am not a child of God, I am a creation of God, but I am also, because of sin, the enemy of God. And I am an enemy who stands defiant to that which God is values and that which is important to him. And so we've seen, uh, over the last couple of, of messages, I, I say that instead of a couple of weeks because I was gone for a couple of Sundays. Uh, and so we have seen that as a result of sin, mankind was driven 
from the presence of God when we were driven from the garden. In other words, when, man, when Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden, they were in the presence of God. God came down to the garden, walked with them, and fellowshiped with them every day. And as a result of sin, when their spirit then died within them, they were banished from the presence of God. They were banished from his garden. Sin banishes us from the presence of God. It banished us from the person of God in our nature. In other words, because my sinful nature has taken over, I am under the control and the authority of that sin nature, then I am then uh, outside of the person of God. In other words, God is not indwelling me. Uh, this He made uh, clear here that, what, that we have the Holy Ghost within us who teaches us who is the earnest of our salvation. He is the one that indwells us until we come into the presence of Christ that works in our hearts, that confirms the word of God in our hearts, that brings conviction to our hearts when we sin. That is all the work of the Holy Spirit of God within our hearts that we receive when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ and accept his salvation and seek forgiveness for our sins. Uh, and so, but aside from that, I am separated from the person of God because of my nature. Not only that, I am living a life that is separated from the power of God. You understand this morning that when you trust Jesus Christ as your Savior, the Holy Spirit comes into your heart and takes up residence and he begins to work in you. He begins to change and transform us from what we were to what he would have us to become. Uh, and so... That saving work is instantaneous, but the work of transformation takes time. It is a slow and it's a deliberate process. And some will develop more quickly than others. And some it will take a long period of time. Some it will, uh, it will uh, happen quickly, uh, depending on our hunger and our desire to, to, to walk with God and to know Him. But it is that power of sin in our life. Listen, sin is powerful. Sin is divisive. Sin does not bring anyone together. It does not bring anything together but other enemies of God. It divides. It destroys. But God would not allow sin to ruin his plan. He would not let it stand. Creation has been defiled, but it has not been destroyed. And we are here. And we are able to hear the truth. And we are able to make a decision about what we'll do with that truth once God gives that truth to us. And so mankind and God can be reunited, but in order for that to happen, things must first be set right. In other words, I can't just wake up one day and decide, you know, I'm going to turn over a new leaf. And so because I've turned over a new leaf and I've cleaned up my act and I started being a better person, then that means God's cool with me now. No, he's not. It's not about what I can do. It's about uh, coming to the realization that what I can do and all my might isn't enough. It, it, it will never satisfy a holy, righteous God. And so there's the concept of atonement. Now, atonement is not uh, something that's completely foreign to us culturally. You hear other religions speak of atonement. And generally what they're talking about is making a payment for sin. They're talking about I have to make a payment for my sin. I can go to my religious leader. I can go to my priest. I can go to this and they'll say, this is what you have to do to make atonement for your sin. What I'm telling you this morning is, is that according to the word of God, there is nothing that you can do or that I can do to make an atonement for my sin. 
Because nothing that I could give would be enough. Nothing that I could bring would satisfy God. It is not something that man is capable of doing, meaning that the transformation of a soul, that the new birth that's in Christ <coughs> is a supernatural act of God. It is as supernatural as creation. It is as supernatural as his virgin birth and resurrection. There's nothing I can do. There is just the realization that I can do nothing. And there is the belief that he is all that he claims to be. And a placing my faith and trust in him and what he's done. And when I do that and I seek his forgiveness and accept his gift, then he transforms me. He changes me. He gives me life. The atonement that brings me to God is not the atonement that I offer. It is the atonement that Jesus offered on the cross of Calvary. And so when we look at atonement and understanding what it is, the world in a, in a, uh, a modern dictionary translation uh, or definition of atonement means reparation for an offense or injury. It is simply to uh, make amends for an injury. So if I go out into the parking lot and crash into your car and you send it to the body shop and I pay the bill, I have atoned for my, uh, for my dis indiscretion of bumping into your car. I have done what I can to make things right. Listen, doing what I can do to make things right between me and God will never be enough. But that is the world's definition. Humanity lacks the resources for such reparation. The, in Wycliffe's Bible Encyclopedia, atonement is defined this way, <coughs> or is said of atonement this. Uh, the, the word atonement is an Anglo-Saxon term which has the force of at one minute. And you take atonement, you break it down, so lost concepts not being taught in schools anymore, uh, phonics and word building are, are gone, uh, but you just break the word down, at one meant. We are at one with God. When atonement has been made, two parties that have been at odds are brought back together and they are made as one. I am brought back to a one meant with God, which is how he created me. It means a making at one. Uh, it speaks of the process of bringing those who were enemies together into harmony and unity and thus means reconciliation. The word reconciliation was used in the verse leading into atonement. We're going to look at that a little bit more compared to uh, where it's used in atonement and reconciliation in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 in just a moment. But he also said uh, in Wycliffe's dictionary or encyclopedia, reconciliation as accomplished by God is thus his self-consistent action for the divine restoration of fellowship between himself and an absolutely holy God and fallen sinful man. It is God's plan and it is God's work that brings man back into harmony with himself. That is the atoning work of Christ. Notice in verse number 11, he says that not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ by whom we now have we have now received the atonement. In other words, we receive atonement through the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, and so, when we understand that, we have to understand 
what does that word actually mean? Well, he used the word reconcile in verse number 10. Uh, if you would, hold your place there and go to 2 Corinthians chapter number 5 because we're going to uh, kind of look at this and break this down so we get a better understanding of how this works out together. The word atonement in Romans chapter 5 and verse 11 is the Greek word catalogue, which means restoration to favor and specifically to divine favor. So when we talk about atonement, by definition of the word, it means to be restored to the favor of God. Uh, and so when we talk about atonement, we're not talking about, uh, okay, uh, God says, you know, I forgive you uh, and I'm, I'm okay with you on the surface, but I've got some bitterness. So if I uh, go out and crash into Miss Patty's car and I pay to get it fixed, but she just in her heart knows that I did it on purpose. And even though I paid to make it right, she says she's forgiven me, but she's still got a grudge. That's not God to us. And so that's the way that we often are, but that's not the way that God is to humanity. And our offense against him was far greater. It is restoration to his favor, as if we had never sinned before. It is as if we had, we had not created an offense or caused an offense at all. And 2 Corinthians chapter number 5 and verse number 18, and we're going to bounce around a few verses here just for a moment. And all things are of God who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. The word there is the same word. The same word in Romans chapter 5 and verse 11 that, that through our Lord Jesus Christ by whom we have now received the atonement is the same word here for reconciliation. Notice that it's, uh, and all things are of God who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ. This is the work of Christ made available to us. And so uh, it's the same word, catalogue. In verse number 19, he says, to wit, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses or putting onto their account their sin, their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. The word here uh, is the word kataloso. Same basic root word here, meaning to reconcile things that were at variance or at odds with one another. And so the work of Christ brings into harmony that which was at enmity. And so mankind in our sin, God in his holiness, are brought back into harmony as we were created in the first place in the Garden of Eden uh, by the work of Christ. That is his atonement. That comes uh, from a root word, alasso, which means to change or to exchange one thing for another to transform. And so the work of Christ takes us from where we were and exchanges us for another by the work of his transformation. Now back up to verse number 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And so what God has done is taking us in our condition and by the work of Christ, traded our sinful state for a state of righteousness, beginning a work of transformation in our life to reconcile us or make us in harmony 
with God. It doesn't mean that I don't sin. Uh, it just simply means that my position is not a position of being without Christ with sins unatoned. I am now someone who has received the atonement. I have received the work that Jesus did on the cross that has been put on my account. So when God looks at me, he looks at an account that has been paid in full. I don't owe any more payments. I have a lot of work to do in my life. I have a lot of time that God has to transform me, that he needs to be working on me. <coughs> but, uh, but I have the atonement. I've received the atonement. Now, the word atonement appears surprisingly few times in the Bible. In Exodus, Numbers, and Leviticus, it, it appears multiple times. Beyond that, it only appears a handful of times generally once in some of the historical books of the Old Testament, and it only appears, uh, I believe here, <coughs> maybe one or two other passages in the New Testament. It is the idea of reconciliation. It is this work of Christ. Now, I have to understand the difference between atonement in the Old Testament and the atoning work of Christ. Understand that the atonement in the Old Testament was a temporary picture of what Jesus would do permanently when he went to Calvary's cross. It was to show. It was a temporary thing. And so we're going to have to go back and hold your place in, uh, in Romans to Leviticus. And we're not going to dive into this super deeply this morning. We just don't have the time. Uh, but I do want to, to lay out Leviticus chapter number 16 uh, and again, we don't have time to read the whole chapter, but that chapter is dedicated uh, to the idea of atonement and what uh, the atoning work uh, in the Old Testament was, what it was intent, and, and what it was given. And, and for example, in chapter 16, uh, in, he's laying out what the priest had to wear, how, the process it had to go about. Uh, and then in verse 5 he says, And he shall take of the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of the goats for a sin offering, and one, uh, one ram for a burnt offering. And Aaron shall offer his bullock uh, of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make an atonement for himself and for his house and he shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation and Aaron shall cast lots upon the two goats one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat and Aaron shall bring the goat uh, upon which the Lord's lot fell and offer him for a sin offering but the goat which the lot fell on um, which the lot fell to the to be the scapegoat uh, shall be to be presented alive before the Lord to make by an atonement with him and to let him go for a scapegoat into the wilderness. Now, in verse in chapter number uh, of Leviticus, chapter number twenty-three, and verses twenty-seven through thirty-two, uh, he gives the the process. In uh, the focus is not so much on the actual process as it is on the heart of the people. The heart of the people to be repentant, to be seeking reconciliation to God. Uh, and it's at, in one of the feasts, it is the Day of Atonement. In verse uh, 26, the, the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Also on the tenth day of the seventh month, there shall be a day of atonement, and it shall be a holy convocation unto you. And ye shall afflict your souls in offering made by fire unto the Lord. Uh, and he goes through the process of uh, what they're to do. <coughs> so get the picture here. Because what we're talking about is a picture of what Jesus would do. 
So they're coming to the tabernacle at this point. Uh, and when they would come into the tabernacle, if we were to uh, look over here, this is about as far as I can go and stay on the live stream. Uh, and this is the gate of the tabernacle. Uh, then when you walked in, there was an altar that was right here immediately when you came in. It's where the sacrifices were offered. It had horns on the altar. It had stairs that came up. It was continually burning. Behind that uh, was the laver. And the laver was water and they would come and they would ceremonially wash before they would offer uh, a sacrifice but also before they would enter into the holy place. Behind that was a long rectangular tent within the rectangular structure of the tabernacle itself. And when you walked in there were two compartments. The first two thirds was called the holy place uh, and in the holy place uh, the priests would come in on a daily basis and they would change out and at certain intervals they would they would fill up when you walked in on the left hand side was the lampstand uh, on the right hand side was the table of showbread uh, and then behind it was the altar of incense and behind that was a veil uh, and so everything was symbolic everything showed what Jesus Christ would do everything about it is a picture of Jesus uh, and so the the sacrifice were made at the altar the, the cleansing ceremonially was made uh, there at the laver and then when you came into the holy place uh, then the lampstand showed the light of God it showed the light of his word it showed the light of his presence then on the right side the showbread showed his provision and his blessing uh, on the showbread there was the the showbread itself on top of that was a vial of oil uh, that represented the Holy Spirit spirit and the freshness of walking with God and working with God and then the altar of incense to symbolize the presence of God's the prayers of God's people going up over the veil and spilling into the Holy of Holies. In the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant, on top of that was the lid, known as the mercy seat. And that's where the presence of God dwelt. When you read in the Old Testament about God and His Shekinah glory leading Israel and hovering over, it hovered over that mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant. And on the Day of Atonement, they would go and they would, uh, the high priest and the high priest only, would take these two kids, these two goats, and <coughs> cast lots, and one was for the sacrifice, and one was for the scapegoat, and he would make an atonement for his own family sins, and then he would make an atonement for Israel. And he would go into the, uh, to the altar and sprinkle the blood, and he would take the blood into the Holy of Holies and go into the veil on this one day a year, and he would offer this atonement on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant in the presence of God. It's all symbolic. It's all a picture. An atonement, the atoning work of the animals in the Old Testament was known as a covering. It was a temporary covering of our sin until Jesus came and made a final payment for our sin. And so uh, they came and showed what Jesus would do. His sacrifice on the cross. His offering of his blood at the throne of God at the presence of God on our behalf it was all done once he did not suffer over and over again and we'll see that when we get to Hebrews chapter 9 in just a moment uh, but it's all laid out when you come in in a long straight line uh, with the 
candlestick and with the showbread on the other side symbolizing from an aerial view across uh, on which Jesus would die all from the Old Testament to symbolize that, that atoning work of Christ what it was going to do. Now there were two kids. There was one that was offered in sacrifice. The other one they took and they poured blood on it and, and the high priest would lay his hands on the head of the animal and confess the sins of the people on the animal and it was symbolic of the transference of sin onto that animal. They would pour the blood uh, of the sacrifice and then by the hand of a fit man it was carried out into the wilderness and it was set free. And so there's a little bit different teaching as to what it meant. One, uh, that, the, that it was uh, not only is the sin paid for, but it's removed. It's gone. Uh, but you could also look at it as that the one was offered in atonement uh, for those that received Christ. And the other one was sent out in the wilderness to be devoured by the beast or by a beast that rejected Christ. Uh, and so uh, it could be dual meaning and we can argue about the, the specifics. It's really not pertinent. I'm just throwing out there the information this morning. But it's simply this, that God has paid for our sins. This in the Old Testament was a temporary covering. But when you get to the New Testament, it's no longer temporary. It's paid in full. <coughs> it's done. It's satisfied uh, by the work of, uh, of Christ. And, and we'll see that in just a moment. So uh, if you're keeping your notes this morning, I'm going to give you our outline now pretty quickly. First of all, we can see in this atonement, we by Jesus Christ have received the atonement. Why is this important? And then we see, first of all, the reason for the atonement. I've, I've spent two sermons on this, uh, on the sermons on sin. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it here. Uh, but reason number one is that sin is an affront to God. I word it that way because I think we have a hard time in our day and age understanding that. Sin is very offensive to God. The whole world is offended over everything. But don't think that God has a right to be offended by our sin. We don't see our sin as being that big of a deal. But it was a big enough deal that Jesus Christ had to put on human flesh. And that he had to walk among us. And he had to endure the cross. And he had to raise from a grave. He had to write the entirety of the scripture. He had to make sure that every I was dotted, that every T was crossed, that every prophecy is fulfilled in order for it to be valid. In order for him to be God. <coughs> All of that was necessary because of sin. And what we so flippantly blow off as not such a big deal in our culture today... God is extremely offended by, and it makes us his enemy. You watch wars that are going on around the world, and you see uh, the pictures that uh, once in a while will creep up on the internet and somewhere, of the things that they're too graphic for them to show on uh, television because it's not just a, a body lying on the side of the battlefield, but it's, it's, it's too gory and too... Uh, dismembered to even identify uh, who or what sometimes it is uh, and those types of things. Uh, when you see all of that, that is what an enemy is. That's what our sin is to God. That's what we are when we are apart from Jesus Christ. And when we let sin in so easily and when we make excuses for it and we, we blow it off and when we, uh, when we rationalize it away, 
We are not pleasing God. We are reverting to behavior that was the cause of us being the enemy of God because of what it did to the Lord Jesus Christ and what it did to compromise His holiness. Sin is not a small thing. And in our, in our culture and in our churches, sin has become something to us that it's just a part of life. It's just a way of life. It's not that big of a deal. I've already been forgiven. When I sin, I can go and he'll forgive me and he'll cleanse me and praise God for that. But don't miss how big of a deal it is to God. He's offended. You think of the very most offensive thing that someone could do or say to you, and that's what we do to God when we sin against Him. When we excuse our sin. The reason for the need of atonement is because sin is an offense or an affront to God. Why do I need forgiveness? Why do I need atonement? Why do I need what Jesus did? Because my sin hurt God, enraged God, brought out the wrath of God, worked up the ire of God, broke the heart of God, caused destruction or the, or the defilement of his perfect creation. Sin is an affront to God. Not only that, but sin banished humanity from God. Our sin banished us from God. When man sinned, and the Spirit died, God did not destroy the Garden of Eden. He drove man from it. He set an angel there to prevent us from re-entering. We were removed from the power and the person and the presence of God. Now I understand that when they had faith and when they came back and Adam and Abraham and all the patriarchs and people throughout time have been able to regain access to the presence of God on some level. They did not enjoy the presence of God like we enjoy the presence of God because they didn't have the Holy Spirit indwelling them whenever they put their faith in God like we have after the Lord Jesus Christ resurrected from the grave. What we have available to us far exceeds what any Old Testament believer had access to on a daily basis. They could come to God. They could experience God's presence, but not like you and I can today with the Holy Spirit indwelling us. We are a people greatly blessed. And the reason for the atonement is because sin banished humanity from God. Now, secondly, consider the requirement for atonement. Because it's one thing to understand I need something. It's another thing to be able to acquire it. There are a lot of things that I have needed throughout my life that I've had to go without. Because I did not have the, a way to acquire them. There are a lot of things that we look at that would just be nice to have. But there are things throughout life uh, that, we've, that we've all had to experience. <coughs> or at least most where this was something that was a great need. It was a need to maybe go to a hospital and get medical attention, but it couldn't be done because there wasn't the money to do it uh, or there wasn't insurance to do it. It could, be, uh, it could be food, it could be work, it could be any number of things, but there are things that at some point in life uh, that, we, that we could not have that we desperately needed because we had no way to acquire it. Listen, it's one thing to understand this morning that I need atonement. It's another thing to acquire. 
and I cannot acquire it on my own. The requirement of atonement in Hebrews chapter number 9 uh, in verse number, uh, verses number 23 through 28. Uh, and these are pretty familiar verses to most of us. But we're going to look at them quickly. And it was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. In other words, the picture of the sacrificial system in the Old Testament was good to show what Christ would do. But now that Christ has come, he has replaced all of that. It's been, uh, it's been fulfilled. It has is, it is, uh, been, uh, everything that God intended was fulfilled in the person and the sacrifice of the Lord uh, Jesus Christ. And so it's been done with better sacrifices than these. Verse number 24. And the reason I went through the whole explanation of the entering into the holy place to offer the blood on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant is because what Jesus does here. Verse number 24. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true or the picture of the true, but into the heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. What the high priest did temporarily on earth, Jesus did permanently in heaven. And he goes before God. And so in verse number 20, <clears throat> 25, nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entered into the holy place every year with the blood of others. For then must he have often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed unto man once to die, but after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once, once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation." What we have this morning is not only the realization that our sin requires that atonement be made, but that we could not make an atonement that was worthy, that was acceptable to restore the holiness of God, which we offended and defiled. But Jesus could. And Jesus took that upon himself and Jesus made that atonement for us. Why? Because first of all, God's justice demanded a sacrifice. The holiness of God, the justice of God had to be satisfied. It had to be served. It could not be left unpaid. There was a debt that we incurred by our sin that must be paid. But we cannot pay it. Go to the bank. Take out a loan for five million. There aren't anybody. There's not a single person in the room that I would think could repay that by the end of their lifetime. But you owe the debt. They'll take your estate. They'll take everything you have to satisfy what can be satisfied. Our sin is a far greater debt than that. And no amount of good works, no amount of effort, no amount of putting our attention to the satisfaction of paying that debt, no amount of overtime, no amount of good fortune, no amount of lotteries won would ever be enough 
to reconcile the debt that our sin has incurred on our account to God, but it still must be paid. Why do I need atonement this morning? I need atonement because God's justice demands payment. It will not go away. We look at, we say, well, God, God is love. God wouldn't do that. God is love. And because God loved us, he paid the payment for us. He stepped in and made the payment that we couldn't make. The world has it all wrong when they think that because God is love, God wouldn't do that. No, God is God. And God is perfect. And God is just. And God is holy. And God is righteous. And God is all that God is, including love. But just because God, because God loves does not mean that God's offense doesn't have to be paid. The offense has to be paid, but his love pays it. If my uh, children come to my house and, uh, and they do damage to the house, if they dent my car, if they knock holes in the wall and they don't have the resources to pay it, I might be mad, I might yell and scream, I might throw a fit, I might uh, read them the riot act, I might uh, give them a cold shoulder for a day or two uh, until they come in groveling and I'm sorry, but the problem still needs to be fixed and they don't have the resources to fix it, but dad pays the bill. That's what God did for us. Because God loves us, he paid the debt for us that we cannot pay. The requirement of atonement is because God's justice demanded a sacrifice. And secondly, God's holiness demanded a worthy sacrifice. In other words, it's not just enough that somebody wants to come and pay on it. If someone were to come in and, you know, we had a church member that came in and they said, Pastor, my... I've got six months left on my lease and I lost my job and I can't pay it and I'm going to be on the street and could the church help me make my rent this month? And so the church steps up and helps make the rent but the balance is still for five more months. We haven't solved the problem. We've only moved it a little further down the road. But if we were to come in and say, you know what, let's just go ahead and pay the whole rest of the lease. You're good for as long as the lease is in effect. It's not enough that the payment's made. It has to be a worthy payment. It's not enough that it's partial. It had to be in full. And God's requirement was that his holiness demanded a worthy sacrifice be made. Payment in full. My friends, the only worthy sacrifice is Jesus. The only acceptable payment was the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter how many of us pull together and offer our blood up for one. If a million of us came together and said, we'll all give our souls, our lives, our blood, that this one might enter, that one cannot enter. Because no matter if all humanity came together for one, it would not be worthy to pay the penalty because it's defiled. One was pure. One was acceptable. Jesus the righteous. Thirdly, consider the recipient of the atonement. 
We've seen the reason. We've seen the requirement. Now consider the recipient. We'll say, well, that's great. That's us. It is. But we, we got to look at something else before we get there. Understand that God accepted the sacrifice. Doesn't matter if he gave it to me if God won't accept it. But because it was an acceptable sacrifice, God did receive it. Because it was worthy, God did receive it. And remember that because we are the enemies of God, because we need an atonement, by the very definition of atonement and the very definition of reconciliation, it is two opposing factions, it is two entities that once were together, that now are divided, that need to be brought back together into harmony, that I come to the realization that God on his throne must be satisfied before, and he must receive the sacrifice that's made before I can receive the benefit of the sacrifice that's been made on my behalf. Someone could come along as I've stated and say, hey, I'm making this payment for you. But if the, if the lender won't accept the payment, it doesn't do me any good. God received the atoning work of Christ. And praise be to the Lord Jesus and to the Father and to the Holy Spirit of God that when they came together and created humanity and devised this plan that they had everything, <coughs> every detail worked out, every contingency was met, every problem was solved, everything was done in the body of Christ. And God, when Jesus came before him in Romans 9, and said, here's my sacrifice. He said, I accept that. I'm satisfied. My holiness is preserved. My holiness is restored. The injury has been uh, repaired. Uh, and God received the atoning work of Christ. And because God received the atoning work of Christ, believers received the work of Christ's atonement. What's the difference between someone that dies and goes to hell and someone that dies and goes to heaven? Whether or not they have received the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do I trust him? Have I believed him? Have I accepted what Jesus Christ has done for me? Believers receive that work of atonement. And what happens? Jesus, who was able because... He was God. Jesus who is able because he was man. <coughs> Jesus because of the uniqueness of his godness and his manness. Was able to come and stand and mediate between God and humanity. And say I represent God as God. And I represent man as man. And I have done what needed to be done to bring us back together in harmony and in unity, reconciling that which has been broken, reconciling with that which has been torn apart, and bringing us back to a oneness together. By his sacrifice, brings us back into fellowship with the Father and begins the transformative work of, of our sanctification as he transforms our life from sinner to saint. I'm glad that when I trusted Jesus Christ as my savior, I instantly received Christ and became a saint of God. 
But I'm also glad that he didn't just leave me where I was, uninstructed, untaught, unled, unfed. He put me on a course where I can learn, where I can grow, where I can develop, where I can mature, where I can not just exist a child of God, but become someone who is fruitful and productive for God as God lives and works through me. <clears throat> That's the work of atonement. I believe this morning that almost everyone in here, virtually everyone in here, has received the atoning work of Christ, but do we really understand what we received? It is the power to be in harmony with God. I wonder how many Christians this morning are living in harmony with the Spirit of God. I wonder how many of us really understand the, the depth the hurt that's inflicted on God by our sin. If we did, would we live differently? If I really love someone, can I live in a way that continually causes them injury? Or will I modify my behavior? Well, I have the right to do whatever I want. I understand what rights we have, but love constrains. Love modifies. It's not so much a matter of what I'm free to do, it's what does love compel me to do. Well, Pastor, I'm, I have the right to go and do this and I have the right, I understand. But what does our love for Christ compel us to do? The degree of, the, the, the level of holiness and faithfulness and commitment to God that we have rests largely upon our understanding of what our sin does to him and how much we truly love him. It's one thing to say that, you know, we've all got that distant relative that we love, but we don't talk to, we haven't seen. Maybe when we see, do see them occasionally, it's like uh, we've been together and like, you know, there's not been any time passed and everything is great. And then there are others that we just, you know, the family gathering comes and you just hope that they stay over in their corner and that you really don't have to talk to them too much and that they don't cross your side of the room. But yet you would say, I love them, their family. And then there's that family member that you just want to spend every moment with. That one that you can't get enough of. That one that you don't need a break from. That one that you... Think about when you are separated. How much do we really love him? How much of that atonement are we living in? All of that atonement's been made available. All of that atonement we have received, especially in connection to our salvation. But how much of that atonement are we actually living out? And how much of it is living through us? Am I fully engaged in the relationship with God? The transforming effect of atonement. The changing me from what I was to what God would have me to be. Am I a Christian that's satisfied with where I am? Or am I a Christian that wants to be more in line with God? More in fellowship with Him. More in love with Him. I can't answer that question for you. I can only answer it for me. If you're here this morning and you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, if you would say, Pastor, I'm, I'm this enemy of God over here. I'm, I'm not a bad person, but I'm according to what the Bible says and what you taught this morning, positionally, I'm, I'm an enemy of God. I have good news for you this morning. Jesus has done the work. 
All you need do is believe that he is the son of God, that he's rose, risen from the dead, that he has forgiven your sin and he's done what I explained to you that he's done this morning. And if you believe that and you have sorrow in your heart for your sin and you seek his forgiveness and receive his gift, then you have salvation. And at that moment that you say, Father, be merciful to me, a sinner, come into my heart and save me. The Holy Spirit moves in and your spirit that died in the Garden of Eden comes back to life. It's regenerated by the Holy Ghost. And you now are a child of God. Begin living in the atonement that Jesus provided. And live a victorious and glorious Christian life.